0: All right, uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome as he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask and pray that you would take these words and burn them into our hearts and our spirits today. Teach us, help us to be teachable this morning that we hear from what you have to say and we apply it to our lives for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled, Signs You're Living in the Kingdom. Signs You're Living in the Kingdom. Last week... I spoke to you about three phases of history before Christ, during Christ, and since the resurrection of Christ. I spoke to you about two realities that we live in, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of dark darkness, or the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of this world. And then I told you there is one hope, and that is founding Jesus Christ. Three realities, two, uh, uh, excuse me, three phases of life, two realities, and one hope Now, today is uh, what I'm going to call part two of that. I want to talk to you about those two realities, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And we find ourselves in that. And I didn't have time to really deal with that last week like I wanted to. And so we're going to look at this passage today about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world that is light and dark, good and evil, love and and hate, truth, and falsehood. We see that all throughout God's word, and we see that all throughout this dark world. So, if you'll turn with me, I'm going to read the entire passage to you. It's starting in chapter 14, verse 12, and we're going to look at that uh, through verse 18. So, if you will look there with me, Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Paul says. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block uh, or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But, anyone, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, You're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Now, I can tell you this, as we look at this passage, immediately, at first, we see that the kingdom, or that kingdom living, knows the day of accounting is coming. Did you notice that in the very first verse that we looked at, that the day of accounting is coming? He premises all that he's going to say with this, this first truth. Because you and I, if we drift through life without considering the reality that there is a day of accounting for all of us, then we're gonna live however we want. And that's how the world does it. They, they do whatever they want to do, live however they want to live, say how, whatever they want to say, and think whatever they want to think because they have convinced themselves that there is no justice, there is no day of accounting before God. So with that, I'm going to back up a few verses and look at this. He actually devotes several verses to it. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. We're going to look at 10 through 12, those three verses. He says, "'You then, why do you judge your brother? "'Or why do you look down on your brother? "'For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. "'It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord.'" Every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now note that he's talking to Christians here, talking to believers, not to unbelievers. He's speaking to those who are already in the kingdom. And I've told you before, that day of accounting for non-believers is a difficult day. It's a difficult time because they're going to have to give accounting to God. And there is no mercy there because they have rejected the mercy of God that's found only through Christ Jesus and through his blood. And because there is no mercy, there will only be a justice and so they will give an accounting to God. God will judge them, and then they will go to judgment. We call that hell. The Bible calls that hell. Hell is simply a place of justice, period. You get what you deserve. You don't get better than what you deserve. That's mercy. You don't get worse than what you deserve because that's injustice. Hell is simply a place of justice. But in that justice, hell is a place of separation where you or anyone who is not a believer in Christ, who has not accepted the mercy of God, will spend eternity separated from God. And so he says uh, that, that reality in this passage, because he's talking to believers, you may be thinking, well, I, I get off scot-free because I'm a believer. Well, you do receive forgiveness because of the blood of Christ. You do gain entrance into heaven. You do get to live with God forever. But there's still a day of accounting for believers as well. And so that's what he says in this passage. He says, because, in fact, he says, do you not know? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then he quotes this. He says, as is it written, surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God. The day is coming. After the trial was over for a man who committed a terrible crime... He had an opportunity to speak his final words. And there he is in, in the courthouse and he's standing before the judge, the victim's family. Other media people were there and he, he got up and started speaking. And instead of apologizing or being repentant, on the contrary, what he says to the judge and to the jury, and to all the people in the courtroom, is he thinks that he's completely justified in what he had done. He's thought about it and determined that he is not guilty of that, and it was okay because he's explained it all the way, and that he should not receive any jail time at all. After he was finished speaking, though, the judge, who sat there quietly through all of that man's rambling, simply said, you get life in prison, goodbye. And they shackled him and took him off to because what that man thought, acting as his own judge, didn't make any difference. The only thing that mattered was what did the judge think? Because the judge's job is to judge. That's why they're called the judge. <laughs> and when you and I go before the throne of God, don't you for a minute think that we're going to explain it away to God and we're going to convince him or persuade him of anything. There will be no attorneys on our judgment day. Amen? (laughs) There will be no defense. There will be no discussion with God where you try to explain or justify anything. God already knows your crime. He knows everything you've ever done and that I've ever done. He knows every thought we've ever had, every bad deed or every bad word that we've ever said. God knows it all. He's the righteous judge. And we have to account for that. So Paul says, because of that, you need to do something differently. And then he begins to talk about a problem. This is interesting. Paul has never been to Rome. He didn't start the church in Rome. It was one of the few churches Paul didn't begin. And so when he wrote his letters, for example, to the church in Corinth, because he founded that church, he started that church, he knew them all. He knew every congregation member there very well. He knew the problems that they had, and he knew the doctrinal issues and the relational issues they were having. He knew that they were a dysfunctional mess, and that church in Corinth was a mess. Paul knew that because he started it. And so he was able to immediately go and deal with very specific things to the church in Corinth because he knew their issues, he knew the problems, he knew, knew what he needed to address with them. But the but the letter to Rome is a little different because he had not started that church, His letter overall is much more general in its theology, which is fantastic because it's a different perspective than what he writes to the church in in Galatia or the church in Colossae or the church in Corinth. And so we we get this beautiful perspective in Rome or the book of Romans, but there was an issue. There was a problem and it had gotten to Paul's ears that there was a problem in the church and it had to do ultimately with a problem of church members Not loving other church members. Now, they didn't think of it that way, but ultimately what they were deciding to do as fellow church members was I can hurt the feelings of my fellow church member. I can run over their feelings. I can look down on them. I can even judge them because they're wrong and I'm right. And because I'm right about this and I'm a mature Christian and they're wrong, so obviously they're immature, I can just slander them or say bad things about them or think bad things about them. And Paul said, no, no. Apparently you've forgotten it in all of your spiritual maturity, he says. Apparently you might've forgotten the fact that you're gonna to have to account for all of this before the throne of God. And so that's what really what premised this whole conversation. When we stand before God, there will be no defense, no presentation of our side of the story. God already knows it. And it will be time for us to simply stand to account. And then also, I know that kingdom living is about acting in love. And this is really the heart of the passage. Kingdom living is about acting in love. Look with me in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, our passage for today. He says in verse 13, Therefore, Because we understand this, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Now, on, on the one hand, this sounds like a good Baptist discussion because it's all about food. <laughs> there was a lot of eating going on, and it was the eating that was the problem and the challenge. And so we might be able to relate to this quite well, but the context was a little bit different. Here's, here's the issue that they had. They were eating food, in this case particularly meat, in the first century church there in the church in Rome that was causing some of them hard feelings. It was wounding some of them. And there are two reasons why. Number one, because Rome was a pagan society and they had so many false gods, they would regularly dedicate the the animal that they're going to send to market, they'll dedicate it to a false god or even sacrifice it to a false god. And once it's been killed at the false god's temple, which they had many huge temples to false gods there, once that bull or whatever animal was sacrificed and was killed there on the altar of their false god, they then would just simply take it to market and sell it. Well, these Romans grew up around that in the church that are now Christians. They were Gentiles, but now they're Christians, and they've eaten that meat all their life. That's just what they do. They make a dedication for that animal or a sacrifice of that animal and declare it, well, this belongs to Apollo or this belongs to that God or whatever. Then they just sell it in the market and we take it home and eat it. They didn't really think a lot about it. But there were others in the church that did. They knew that meat had been sacrificed to a foreign, false God. And it just really bothered them. Are we really going to eat this meat? It's been dedicated to this other pagan god. And for me, I'm kind of participating in that. And it was a problem. Some of them, their conscience would not allow them to eat that meat. And others, their conscience would. The second problem is, there were members of that church in Rome, like most of the churches, who didn't grow up as Romans. They didn't grow up as Gentiles. They grew up as faithful Jews. And they had all these dietary regulations about what they couldn't eat and could not eat. I remember I shared with you just a week or two ago about Peter himself. He, he went through this transition uh, and, and suddenly he had this vision. He had to have a vision. but God had to come down in a vision and tell him, hey, you can eat everything. And remember Peter gave him some pushback immediately and said, no, not I. And God said, yep, you. Now don't, don't call anything I've made unclean from here on out. Now, here was the challenge. For this church in Rome, for example, for those who had been Jewish all of their life and converted to Christianity, and it was, it, they had lived with these regulations all of their life, it had been burned into their mind. It had been pounded into them by their parents and grandparents. It, it, was, it was what it was to be Jew. You just didn't eat pork chops. You just don't do it. No bacon for you. You, you had these rules. And so they go to a Christian church now, the church in Rome, and the church says, by the way, rules are out the door. That's the old covenant. This is the new covenant. In the new covenant, everything is clean. We've been freed from the law, Paul said, so you can have your pork chops and your bacon. And they, they heard the theology. They listened to the sermon. Maybe they even said amen to the preacher. But when they got home, they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Others, oh man, they're smacking on that bacon. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) They love the pork chops. And so no problem for them. Well, here's here's the rub. First of all, theologically, Paul was right. Of course. Did it matter to God whether that animal had been sacrificed to an idol at one point, or maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, or did it matter to God? And, and here's the challenge that the Jews had. Not only did they have that pounded into them all of their life, but their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, for thousands of years they had had those regulations. And now suddenly, oh, by the way, all these laws, you don't have to do that anymore. I just couldn't do it. It took a generation or two or three just to help the, the, the Jewish converts to begin to, and their families to begin to understand and really fully embrace the fact that they had been freed from the law. Does that make sense? Here's the problem. They're having a big church fellowship. Again, good Baptists. Having a church fellowship, somebody brings in the pork chops. Somebody brings in a big old platter of Bacon. And the people who have issue with that and their conscience is guilty as they look at that bacon and go, man, you know, mama said no. (laughs) Papa said no. And there's a big plate of bacon. So the bacon eaters were taking the bacon and I don't know if it was bacon, but surely it was. (laughs) They were taking the bacon and they were smacking it apparently right in front of the non-bacon eaters. (laughs) And they were saying this, You immature dummies, uh, a paraphrasing here, you immature dummies, can't you see, you're just not, if you were just more spiritual like me, you would see you could have your bacon. And so because you're not willing to eat the bacon, you're a bunch of spiritual idiots. You're just babies. And so they were looking down, they were judging the ones, the others, because they would. Now you had the non-bacon crowd, by the way, that probably were the, the, the the conservative fundamentalists of the day and they were thinking, oh, you bunch of bacon eaters, you're gonna burn. Uh, I am disciplined, I shall eat no bacon. And then they were looking down on the bacon eaters. So everybody's looking down on everybody, amen? All right, that's a lot of fun. The only problem is that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdom of this world works, but it's not how God's kingdom works. And here's what he says. He said, the problem that you're having isn't bacon or no bacon or meat or no meat. The problem that you're having is whatever you're doing, you're doing it out of selfishness and not out of love. You're not thinking about your fellow Christian. You're thinking about yourself. And he, in the end, both of them struggled with that. And so he says this. As one who is in the Lord, this verse 14 As one who's in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for them it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. He says, church members, think about one another. Is your fellow church member not more important than bacon? (laughs) And by the way, You are more important than bacon. (laughs) And just in case there's any confusion, the answer is yes. Your fellow church member is more important than dietary regulations or the lack thereof. They're more important than what you eat or drink. He says, whatever you do, act in love. The earmark of the kingdom of God is it's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of love. There's an old story about Francis of Assisi and apparently, he was terrified of leprosy. He couldn't stand. I mean, of course, this is back in the day. People died from leprosy, and, and they were ostracized. And he couldn't stand to be around lepers. And the story goes that one day, he came across a leper on a road, and he was terrified. And he started to run away. And he realized, as he was about to run, that that's not what Christ would do. And in light of his fear... And in light of his, his horrified feelings about that man being unclean and having leprosy, he stopped in his tracks, he went over to the man, he hugged him, and he kissed him on the cheek. He had to face his own fear and realize that whatever horrified him was not as important as conveying love to that person who needed love. It's all about how we love one another. To do that, of course, we have to humble ourselves. And for those who had to write theology, and Paul says, I personally don't think there's a thing wrong with eating. You need whatever you want. Paul says, I get it. You're right, that technically, but if it hurts your other brother, if, it's a, if his conscience struggles, even because of his spiritual immaturity, be sensitive to what they're going through. Be willing to humble yourself for others. Famous composer Leonard Bernstein was once asked which instrument was the most difficult to play. Of all the instruments in an orchestra, which one is the toughest instrument to play, they asked him. You know what his response was? He thought a minute and he said, you know, the hardest instrument to play is second fiddle. (laughs) He said everybody wants to play first violin. The problem was if everybody plays first violin, there's no harmony because it's the same part. And you have to, some people have to be willing to play second violin or second fiddle and play it with passion in order for it to happen. Now, I grew up in band. I I loved band in high school and college. I played trumpet, and I totally got that. If you were a trumpet player, you had one goal, and that was to be first chair. If it couldn't be first chair, then at least be first part. There was first part, second part, and third part. And the worse you were, the lower your part. (laughs) And so... You know, there's this end, first chair, and then there's that end down there. And you don't want to be in that end down there. You want to be in first chair. And so those who are playing second or third part, it's easy for them to think, this is stupid. I hate this part. I should be down there playing first part. Why can't we all play first part? Here's the thing. If every trumpet player played first part and it was all the same note, it would just rip your ears out. It is like fingernails on a chalkboard. There has to be harmony. In order to have harmony, you have to have second part and you have to have third part. You have to have that. In church, is the same way. Some people have more, more public positions than others and more accolades than others. But the truth is, we have to have all parts here in order to make this work. And I so appreciate those people who are willing to quietly, humbly, do things that others wouldn't do in order for it to all take place. And so this is what Paul is telling them. Humble yourself and think about others first. And then also kingdom living is about powerful living, not petty complaining. Kingdom living is about powerful living, not petty complaining. Now, we are citizens of the kingdom of light. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of light, don't live like you're in the dark. Don't talk like you're in the dark. Don't think like a person in the dark. Why would we do that? Well, I'll tell you why we do that, because Satan convinces us that our darkness is light. He's already got everybody in darkness thinking it is, but he tries to convince us as well. Kingdom living is about powerful living. There is great power in the kingdom of God. It is not about petty complaining. So he says this in chapter 14, verse 16, the next verse. He says, in verse 16, there we go. Do not, uh, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Now, let me say that whatever he has just said in all of these verses, including these, the the result, the goal is at the very end that we serve Christ in this way that is pleasing to God and proved by men. Whatever you say, whatever you do this week, it should be with the goal of it being pleasing to God and pleasing to men. You try to please God. And Try to please others as best you can or try to live at peace with others as best you can. And so that's what he says, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by man. Now, there's this odd verse in here, this statement. Did you catch it? It really seems to be at odds with the whole passage. And here's the the odd thing, verse 16. Did Did you notice it? He's talking about humbling yourself and considering the needs of others first, et cetera. Think about them, love them. And then he suddenly says in verse 16, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Man, all right, bacon it is. (laughs) You won't eat the bacon, okay, I won't eat the bacon because it offends somebody. But I'm gonna let him know (laughs) that bacon is just fine. That is not what he's saying here. I had to actually had to look this up because it can be easily misinterpreted. What on earth is he talking about? Well, here's what was happening. People were speaking uh, uh, of the good that was in the church as evil because what? So he's dealing with issue that's within the church, but it doesn't stay within the church. It reverberates outside the church. And people outside the church, those who were lost, who needed Christ, who who were living in darkness, they're looking at the church and they're thinking, what? Those silly people. Did you you hear about those silly Christians? They're arguing with each other over bacon. (laughs) And it made the church look bad. Do we ever do anything that makes the church look bad? See, we we don't have bacon issues, but we have the same kind of issues in our life and in our churches. So what kind of behavior inside the church is making Christ look bad? Understand that whatever we do in the kingdom of light, it reflects upon our Savior to this world. And the only Jesus they know is what we do right now. Here in this place. And I get my heart's desire is that whatever people in ASL think about First Baptist Church, they think of it first and foremost as a church of loving people that represent Christ. How does your behavior inside the church make Christ look? A church member was sharing with me recently that they were deeply troubled about some political posts that they had seen from other church members. Now, most of you are not this way, and I'm not gonna point any fingers, and I can tell you if you're watching online, uh, I see this all across the board, but I'm not accountable for what happens in other churches or outside the church. I am accountable for what happens here. And this person was just sharing with me personally that they were troubled about political posts they'd seen online. From fellow church members. And here's what, what the problem is. For the last four years, since 2016, when the, our president was Donald Trump, I saw four years of slander from the news media. And I mean slander, not just, and you have to realize 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, this is what they would do the news media. the the journalists, they would say, I disagree with the president on these issues, this issue and this issue and this issue, and I disagree with him strongly for the following reasons, and they would talk about their disagreement with the president, but they would never dishonor or disrespect the president, whoever the president was. They would certainly never resort to name-calling Because what we saw for the last four years and really before from the news media was this junior high rhetoric. Uh, You know, just junior high playground slander, slander them, persecute them, prosecute them, cancel them. And they would just say every name in the book they would call Trump. They would, everything they could say, just, just make them, all oh, anything, it doesn't matter because they believed that they were right and he was wrong and therefore whatever they said, no matter how evil or inaccurate it was, it's okay because he's the bad guy and I don't have to respect bad guys. Now we have a Democrat president and while I so quickly and easily recognized and was frustrated at how terribly President Trump was talked about with the media, I see the same kind of rhetoric coming from Christians about our current president. Let me tell you this first and remind you that there is not a single president in our history that is not there for one reason and one reason only, and that is God allowed it. Now, maybe he allowed it for his glory or maybe he allowed it for his judgment, but God is in charge. Joe Biden not in charge. The Republicans aren't in charge. The Democrats aren't in charge. God is in charge. And again, you can go to the book of Romans. It'll tell you that. Paul had to deal with this very same thing. Now, I'm not happy with the issues of our president. I'm staunchly pro-life. And I'm not particularly concerned about the other issues in any respect to the level that I am about what judgment will come because we are taking the lives of our children before they're even born. You have to know that God's not neutral on that, and because it is murder, God's gonna judge us for that. I mean, there's just no way around it. But here's what I must do. I must say this about our current president. I disagree with him, and I can give you all the reasons why I disagree with him, and I think that he's wrong on so many issues, and I so strongly disagree, but I will not slander him. Not because of him, but because of Christ. I will not call him petty names. That's what the dark world does. The kingdom of darkness, that's not what we do in God's kingdom. What do we do in God's kingdom? We forgive, we love, we pray for them. You wanna do something for our president? You wanna make a difference? You you can hold up a picket sign all you want. You can slander on Facebook all you want. It won't make a bit of difference. Do you think he reads your posts? no. He doesn't read your posts. Maybe the FBI does, but he doesn't. He's not harmed one bit. You really want to change our government? You lift them up in prayer. Because I've seen, and you know this, God has time and time again changed entire nations, caused revolutions, caused Rome to go from this ultimate pagan society to an official Christian nation in just a few hundred years after the resurrection of Christ. They would have been shocked had they realized that in the first century. They had no idea that they were standing against the kingdom of light. You talk about power. There is power in being a citizen of the kingdom of light. Stop talking, thinking, and posing like somebody that lives in the dark. Leave the hate to them. Disagree. Disagree passionately, but disagree under the law of love. It is the only law that we are not freed from, and that is the law of love. Okay, um, uh, and then lastly, kingdom living is about knowing your enemy. I touched on this last week, but I didn't, I didn't go to the verse, and I will go there now. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Kingdom living is about knowing the enemy. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, a church he knew well, by the way, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. You know what that means? That means your enemy is not in North Korea. Your enemy is not in Iran. Your enemy is not in Washington. Your enemy is Satan himself. And the dark powers of this world, those people who live in Iran or those leaders in Iran, the leader in North Korea and those leaders that are in Washington are pawns. It's the evil one that we battle. Now, they don't know they're pawns, and they would probably resent that I said that, but the truth is, in this dark world, either you're a servant of Christ or a pawn of Satan. They're just pawns. So this week, I, I went to Austin. I was contacted by a, a representative of a ministry called Texas Values. It's a nonprofit organization based down in Austin, just a couple of blocks from the Capitol building. And they gave me a a wonderful opportunity. In fact, I had trouble believing it at first. They said, pastor, what we would like to do is for you to come down to Austin and we're gonna have a few other pastors do this as well. They had one other pastor with me and they said, we are arranging meetings between you and our Texas senators and Texas Congress members. And we're going to have you go into the Capitol, into their office, and you're going to pray over them. And I thought, wow, okay. Now they said, here are the rules. We have no political agenda. Uh, We are not going to uh, mention politics to them at all. We're not going to lobby for anything. We're just there simply to pray for them. Whether they're Republican or Democrat, they need prayer and they need somebody coming into their office with no agenda because it never happens. And they share with me, they've already started doing this and they had been in offices of our senators and Congress people that, that were just stunned to find out that we didn't have an agenda. So that's what I did Thursday. Uh, I went there Wednesday night and Thursday morning. I began to go into the offices of our senators and our congressmen, and I would get to know them and talk with them a little bit. And we had a representative from that ministry there with us, and I had one other pastor with me. I was the short one; He was six foot five, (laughs) and from a pastor in Amarillo, a real nice guy. And, And so we sat there in office after office. We would Get to know them a little bit, ask them about their family and talk to them about their challenges and ask them if there's anything that they they would like for us to pray over. And not a single one of them turned us down on that offer to tell us what challenges they were having. And then we would pray for them and then we would leave and go to the next meeting. It was the last meeting of the day that I found particularly interesting because every one of the ones that we talked to were, oh yeah, it's going great, we're doing good, we're getting the power in Texas back on and heads are rolling over that, you know, and that was a big conversation. But the last guy immediately, he was a young man in his 30s, young family, born again Christian, by the way, believer in Christ, and he was genuinely discouraged. He told us, he said, you know, even though it's a Republican led, Congress. He said, you know, I am, he, he just told us, point blank, he said the word discouraged and discouragement multiple times. He said he feels that there are only two or three of them in, in in the Capitol building that are really trying to make a difference. He said what he, and he gave us, he gave me this story, this little parable, and he said, he said, the people here that, that are in Congress, he said, they're like people that are on a bus. He said, the bus is full of people. All the, the bus is going down the highway and anybody on the bus could drive the bus. He said, but there's no driver on the bus. There's no driver. The driver's seat is empty and the bus is going to crash. And everybody on the bus is okay with the bus crashing as long as they're not in the driver's seat. Because if they get in the driver's seat and it crashes, then everybody's going to blame the driver. So they accept the fact that the bus is gonna crash as long as they don't have to be the one to blame. He said, that's exactly what's going on in Texas right now. Nobody wants to take the driver's seat. Nobody wants to take the risk. They're all just sitting in the back seat waiting for the bus to crash. And he was discouraged. Now, immediately I gave him this passage. And I said, I want you to know that your battle is not against Democrats or anybody else, your battle is against principalities. And I said, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Even if he's only one, he can make a difference. And then I committed this, and this is where you come in. I promised him that we would be praying for him. And to my detriment, you know, we hear all the, the news about Congress in Washington, but we don't ever talk about, think about or pray about our leaders in Austin. They don't make the news. I didn't never heard of this guy. In fact, I never heard of a single person that I went to pray with. I don't know any of them. Do you know any of our congressmen or senators by name? I didn't, I don't, you know. So I told him, I said, you know what? You are not alone. We are going to be praying for you. And my challenge to First Baptist Church is that you and I would commit to every day, every week, lifting up our Christian fellow leaders in Congress and in the Senate, nationally, but also in the state of Texas, whether they're Democrat or Republican, lost or saved, we will lift them up in prayer. Don't just pray about them, God, go get them. (laughs) You pray for them. Pray that God will transform this country through our national leaders. They are where they are. I'm not there, you're not there. We don't get to vote on the floor like they do. And so we need them. We need godly people there. And they need to feel that they are not alone. Okay? All right. Um, and so I, I give you that challenge right there. That memory. That we are not in a battle with a political party. We're in battle with the spiritual forces of darkness, and we have been empowered to defeat them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. First, we ask for forgiveness. Well, for we have not been lifting up our leaders like we should. Oh, we complain, but we don't pray for them. We acknowledge that you are 100% in control. You're sovereign. You're in charge. You have the power and authority to transform lives and to change hearts. You have the ability to take the person who is darkest and bring them into the kingdom of light. We are reminded of the, the very one you used to author so much of the New Testament, including our passage for today. Paul was a man who murdered and persecuted Christians. He hated them and you brought him full circle into the godly leader that you destined him to be. He would never have believed that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the worst of the worst, and you transformed him. And you changed all of history because of that transformation. Now, Father, we ask and pray right now, in Washington, in the state of Texas, in Austin, We pray for our leaders, every congressman and woman, every senator, we lift them up to you right now. We pray your spirit would guide them, convict them, lead them. We ask and pray that you would use them in a way that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we lift up our president to you and our vice president. We acknowledge we don't agree with them, and we are often very angry about them, and that's understandable. But Father, I pray you would forgive us for those times that we have hated them. Because when we give in to hate, we are no different than those who are living in darkness. But in the kingdom of light, there is no room for hate. So we lift them to you, Father. If they are to be judged, it is your hand of judgment upon them but we ask and pray for your hand of transformation. There's nothing, there is nothing more powerful than the thought of Camilla Harris accepting Christ as her Lord and Savior, repenting of her sins. There's nothing greater than the thought of Joe Biden coming into faith with you and realizing that you are the author of life and that life is precious to you. And we lift them up right now. If you can convert Paul, you can convert them. Father, for this senator in our state later, la- that is struggling, we lift him to you. You know who he is and where he is. You know how he's struggling. We pray your arm of encouragement on him today. May your spirit of power fill him. May he... Be reminded of the hope that he has in Christ and that he is not alone. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you today to make a commitment to your God that you're going to pray for that senator, the rest of our senators, and the rest of our Congress here in Texas and also in Washington and throughout the land? Will you do that? You don't have to go on and on and big long prayers every day. Just lift them up and say, God, i lift up our government to you. I know they're only there because you allow them to be there. And I pray that they would be drawn to you and that your will is done. Would you be willing to do that? I pray you'll be glorified, that they would be transformed. Would you be willing to do that? It may be God is calling you into the kingdom of light. And you may be sitting there right now thinking, you know what? I'm living in the kingdom of darkness. My, light is not, my life is not in the kingdom of light. And you know it. And you need to surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. Listen to me, I guarantee, you. I promise you the kingdom of light is so much better than what this world has to offer. It may not be easier, but it is so much better. It is a kingdom that offers hope and joy and peace. And the world will never give you that. They'll give you fake joy and fake hope and fake peace, but it's all a lie. In order to do that, you need to surrender yourself to Christ. I won't say that's easy, because it isn't, but it is very simple. It is simply a matter of surrender. This is not a one or two week thing like a crash diet where you're the same no different in a month. This is a surrender of your entire life to Jesus Christ. I give myself to you. And the Bible says if you'll surrender to his lordship, and you'll confess it with your mouth, and if you believe in your heart in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you will be saved. If you would like to come into the kingdom of light, I challenge you here in just a moment to come up and say, Pastor, I want to come into the kingdom. I want to be saved. And maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and fight the good fight here in this place. Or maybe you just want to come up and kneel and pray for your government. If God is leading right now, this invitation, this opportunity is for you. No one's looking around. As you pray, would you stand? All heads are bowed and all eyes are closed. And as you stand right now, you come.